Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 14. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion. You who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Let's pray together. Our Lord, God the Holy Spirit, pushed. Now, the only person who knows this besides me is, and God, (laughs) is Brandon. Uh, When I selected the passage we would be studying today, I got way overambitious. We're cutting it in half instead of what I had understood I would be doing Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through 29 no 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 we're going to do uh, Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through 13 <laughs> so we're cutting it why because it is an absolutely outrageous informative eye-opening to in more than one sense passage of scripture
Let me read this passage, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he, Jesus, said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him! (coughs) Suddenly, When they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah comes first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Well, this, the previous passage that we dwelled on last week, and this passage right here, this is the climax of Mark's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have as the center of their narrative. Peter's profession, you are the Christ, as is stated in Mark. You are the Christ, the Son of God, as it is in Matthew. That is the pit, and everything comes up to that and then comes away. And immediately after, Jesus, and of course, as we looked at the passage last week in Mark chapter 8, they're walking along the road, he and the disciples, and he said, well, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're this prophet. There is a prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy that would come. And some say that you're Elijah, and who do you say that I am? Oh, and then Peter speaking for all of them, you are the Christ, the Messiah, that great son of David. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the son of God. And then Jesus tells them 
information they haven't had yet. And he says, okay, fellows, <laughs> I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be given an illegal trial. I am going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And I am going to rise from the dead. And they are absolutely stunned. They have been with Jesus at this time well over two years. They have seen probably thousands of miracles done by him. Cleansing lepers, raising the dead, healings of all kinds, casting out demons, all these outrageous things they've seen. They've heard his, his message. They've heard his message. And then, and many of them have already sacrificed their livelihoods. Yes, they're following him. Yes, their needs are being met on a day-to-day -day basis. But they walked away from their trades to follow Jesus probably at least two years, if not more ago. And Jesus tells them this, wait a minute, you're the king. And now you're telling us all this? This is so strange, folks. He says this to them over and over and over again, and yet, what do we find is the narrative following Jesus' resurrection? When the women came and said, well, Jesus is, is alive. We've had angels tell us. We've seen him ourselves. And the, what do the apostles do? Oh, really? It, this is a divine... They will remember it later, but it's kind of like there has to be a divine deafness at the same time. And Jesus finally has to show up in the upper room and disclose himself to them and eat a honeycomb and eat a piece of fish and, hey, come on, hug me, come on. Thomas, put your finger in the nail pin, put your hand in my... Yeah, he's really a physically alive guy. Plus... Peter takes him aside in the, in the Mark 8 passage and says, no, Lord, this can't happen. This bad stuff can't happen to you. It can't, it can't, it can't. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> For you do not savor the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Then he makes it even worse, if we can say that. Oh, you need to go and take up your cross and follow after me. These are men who had already walked away from their trades. They'd been following him for two plus years. Now he tells them, take up your cross and follow me. And they had probably all witnessed crucifixions. This is not some remote concept like we have with crosses on the one. No. Or even we may have gone to see. No, they had witnessed this. They know the horror, the terror of it. And then when he says, take up your cross and follow me, that is about as big a punch to the face. You talk driving disciples away. That's how you do it. Now, did they go away? No. But after saying that to them, he then says, I'm going to be stepping into glory. The very close of chapter 8, he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
of him the Son of Man, Messiah, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And then he takes them up. Did I already read the passage? <laughs> I did. Okay. So he takes them up on the Mount of, probably Mount Hermon. That's the best guess. Takes them up and he is transfigured before them. And they witness this. Why is Jesus doing this? He has given them a message that will, if anything, left to themselves without Holy Spirit enabling power, they will flee from him. They will leave him as his disciples. But what is he doing with these three apostles, James and John and Peter? By the way, these are the three guys that always go with him. Like when he raised the widow, the daughter of Jairus from the dead. They were the three that accompanied him. These are the three. And he takes them on this mountain. And what was the ultimate part of what he had said to them in chapter 8? And ultimately, at the end of your cross journey, there will be glory. At the end of your cross journey, there will be glory. Why is he disclosing this enormous display of glory to them? Because it is an incentive to them to know at the end of your cross journey, there really is glory. I'm giving you a look through the knothole. <laughs> I'm giving you an opportunity to see that forthcoming kingdom glory that you can, you someday will step into as you follow me as my disciples. And so, again, verse 2 now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. They're, they're given a visual display of kingdom glory radiating out from Christ, God the Son such as no launder on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So here is, and here are Peter, James, and John. The one who they've been following for over two years, and he is speaking with Moses and Elijah. And of course, Moses and Elijah were actually heralds in the same way that John the Baptist was a herald. Announcing the coming of the king, filling up the, the potholes, filling up every valley and leveling every mountain, knocking the pot and knocking the bumps off the road. That's the actual job of the herald is to fix the roads, make sure the roads get fixed before the king comes to visit that part of his kingdom. But except he, John the Baptist is doing it in the hearts of the people. We got potholes in our, in our hearts. We've got bumps and we got all kinds of stumbling places in our own hearts. And John the Baptist was there to, to make the way of the Lord so that he would walk this, the straight, clean path into the hearts of the people. That was the role of John the Baptist. But what had they asked John the Baptist? Are you Elijah? 
Well, Jesus says, in a sense, yes, John the Baptist was Elijah. Why? Because he was a herald. Elijah also will be a herald. It says in the last chapter of Malachi that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. By the way, Elijah never died. Elijah was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind accompanied by a chariot, and Elisha the prophet witnessed it. That's how we know about it. He was taken up into heaven, and then in Malachi it says he's going to come again. Now, when John the Baptist came, he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. He's not Elijah, but he's doing the same kind of function that Elijah will do before the second coming of Christ. So John the Baptist, in a sense, was an Elijah. But here is Elijah and here is Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. And Jesus is displaying all these, this glory. And here are these three men. What am I supposed to do with this? And I think it's... Uh, I think... Uh, now, actually, as I noted when we started this series, this could legitimately be called the Gospel of Peter. Basically, Mark is the scribe writing down what Peter is reciting to him because Mark was a disciple. He, he ministered alongside Peter in the last few years of Peter's ministry. And so, of all the Gospels, uh, which, which is the Gospel that Peter shows up the worst? <laughs> it's in the Gospel of Mark. He's not afraid of people finding out what a knucklehead he once was. <laughs> and here is this fellow Peter. He doesn't know what to say. The text really says, we didn't know what to say. What do we do with this? I've got a plaque. I literally have a plaque on the wall at my house. Closed mouth gathers no foot. <laughs> a closed mouth gathers no foot. <laughs> Well, he doesn't know what to say, so he blurts something out. <laughs> oh, Lord, why don't you let us build a tabernacle? <coughs> Three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, let's cut Peter some slack here. <laughs> Peter is a Jew. His whole life sitting in the synagogue, hearing the scripture read, hearing the rabbis expound things, who are the human beings from the Hebrew scriptures that have been elevated perhaps the most, for, for sure, Moses? He's the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. All the, the mighty things God did through Moses. Elijah, the mighty things God did through Elijah. These guys are Jewish heroes. And they're speaking here with Jesus. And the very strong Jewish fellow, Peter says, let us build a tabernacle. One for you, Lord. One for Moses. One for Elijah. <sighs> you shouldn't have said anything. Peter, Peter, Peter. No, I'm not going to say Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. Oh, yeah, I just did. Oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. A cloud a cloud comes over them and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. 
Peter and James and John, don't you dare put God the Son on the same level as his servants, Moses and Elijah. (coughs) Don't you know who the one you've been with is? You stated it yourself, Peter. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Has it really come together in your mind, Peter? You can say that. I ask yourselves, I ask myself, as we read this word, ladies and gentlemen, as we read this word, as we read of God's declarations about Himself and who He is, so that we will take strength and understanding from Him. We have His precious and magnificent promises, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. We have His promises so we can lay hold of those promises and walk with Him through this difficult terrain. This is my Son. Honestly, I get where Peter's coming from. Because I look at myself, and how often do I, am I really walking in God's declarations and promises? We read these. We study them. We spend devotional time in them. We seek instruction, and we know enough that we can walk in them if we exercise the faith that enables that by the Holy Spirit's enabling power. Everything we need is present and available to us. So at the same time, we can step back and laugh at Peter. Frankly, aren't we all Peters and James and Johns? Don't fully grasp the revelation that God has disclosed to us. So while we can step back and in one sense step back, step back and laugh at the same time, ought we not to hold ourselves accountable in the way that God the Father holds Peter accountable? Peter, this is my son. Jesus in John's Gospel will literally say to these men, he who has seen me has seen the Father. When the Magi came into the house in Bethlehem in the middle of the day when they knocked on the door and Mary opened the door, they came in and they didn't worship her, they worshiped him. Did the Magi understand fully? Well, they understood enough that they made the trek all the way from the Tigris-Euphrates Valley over there about two years after Jesus' birth. But did they? Un- we don't understand fully. Peter didn't understand fully. And here they have, they have this revelation and Peter blurts out this nonsense. Don't you dare put my son on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Wouldn't we have loved to have been disciples of Moses and disciples of Elijah? Sure. They're disciples of God's son himself.
And a cloud came over, came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And what is God saying to us? This is my beloved Son whom I've disclosed to you. Hear Him. Listen. <clears throat> Don't just listen and close the book and walk away. No. Take the message with you. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Suddenly, Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, all the glory is gone. Jesus looks just like he had when he walked up the mountain with them. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, not even the other apostles, till... The Son of Man had risen from the dead. He had told them six, seven days before, for the first time, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be put in a tomb. I'm going to come out of that tomb on the third day. Don't tell anyone until I have risen from the dead. He's already told them, but that what is he talking about? What is he talking? Why? They didn't really want to understand it. He had so completely changed the terms of their discipleship to a much more tedious in the immediate sense, though glorious in the ultimate sense, than they had ever had imagined. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. The Malachi statement is yet to take place. It is yet to take place before the coming kingdom, before Messiah comes and reigns in that glorious coming kingdom. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things, sets everything in order. And if you read the book of Revelation, you find the two witnesses, Elijah and probably Moses, there who take over the temple precincts, the temple area for three and a half years. And they are calling plagues down on the earth. But there's also a massive turning to Christ in that time. There's a massive turning to Christ. And they're killed. Their carcasses are left on the street for three days. And the world is so happy about the death of these men, they're not allowing them to be buried. And there are thousands of people there looking on the carcasses of those two guys, Moses and Elijah, when suddenly a voice comes from heaven and they stand up. And then the voice says, come up here. And the thousands of people watch them rise the presence of God and there is a massive repentance in Jerusalem at that this is a future day there is a massive repentance and turning to Christ and then following God's instruction all of those people flee to the east to a place of divine protection and provision but Moses and Elijah are coming but especially in both Malachi, in Malachi Elijah is named but here it is, the, the representative of the prophets and the representative of the law speaking to the Jewish people. 
Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. <clears throat> and how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and, he, and be treated with contempt? He told, talked to them about that. That's also in the Hebrew prophets. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have they forsaken me? They pierced my hands and my feet. This is, that's written 500 years before crucifixion is known to have ever been invented. And yet David is writing those words in Psalm 22. They've cast lots for my garments. They've given me vinegar to drink. Psalm 22, Psalm 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come in the person of John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. And John the Baptist, in the narrative earlier in Mark's gospel, John the Baptist had already been beheaded by order of Herod Antipas. What are we to take from this? Be students of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God come in the flesh. Be students of him. Who is he and how does who he is and his job description, how does that affect me? How has he enabled me? What provision has he made to me through his person and his job description, who he is, what he does, and how does he enable me to walk in that reality? That is what we are to study and don't close the book and forget about it when you walk. No. Live in it. Take it with you in your mind and heart as you walk through the fullness of each day. He is your real dwelling place. That's what this was pushed through to Peter, James, and John for, and ultimately to us. Walk in the full reality of who God the Son is. May we pray? Our Lord, we need you. We need you as you really fully are. You are our Redeemer. You completely resolve the issue of the guilt of our sin. We have been justified. We've been moved from a place of condemnation before you to a place where we stand in the righteousness of your Son. You not only swept away the guilt of our sin, you replaced it with His righteousness. You truly look at us as if we were Jesus on this issue of righteousness because that was granted to us. You also have granted us the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the same time that we were born from above, given life before you, as is every believer of since the garden to this time. You also, since the day of Pentecost, every day, every authentic believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. You have granted to us your energizing presence and your wisdom. We are asking that you would enable us to walk in that provision that you have made for us.
We thank you for welcoming us and that we have a great high priest, even Jesus Christ the righteous. We give you praise and ask that you not allow us to forget what the Holy Spirit spoke to us today through his word. We ask this of you, good shepherd. And all God's people said, Amen.